So a few months ago now, we were, it was almost like a year ago, we were planning what Vacation Bible School was gonna look like for the kids. I randomly got hooked up with this guy named Hayden. And Hayden is the Hollywood animal guy. So like if you see animals in a music video or a movie, he's the guy and he retired and moved to the valley, which is crazy. So he has the only permitted for private use rhino in America. Is that crazy? And like wildlife safari called one time, they called Hayden, they said, hey, our rhino is sick. Could we borrow your rhino just so that, you know, the people can enjoy it? And Hayden goes, oh, that's like a really bad idea. And they, and they go, why? And he goes, our rhino is trained to flip cars. Like, that's what he does in movies. He's the rhino that flips the cars. That's not gonna work out. And so he's got a monkey, he's got camels, he's got giant tortoises, all those things we're able to bring for VBS. He has the coolest thing in the whole world, which we didn't get, but he offered. He has two completely trained, totally safe. You can stand next to them, no cage, and it's fine. They're like puppies, grizzly bears. And I was like, guys, let's get these for vacation Bible school. <laughs> this is so cool. I lost that one, which is probably better. But what's really cool is Hayden has also elephants. And, you know, getting to train an elephant is crazy because elephants are so powerful and they're so smart and they're just so big. Like, how do you really get that thing to listen to you? And Hayden's the one who told me when you, the only really way to do it is you have to start with them when they're babies, when they're small and they're weak and you tie them to a tree and they're gonna rip and tug against that tree and they're just gonna fight, fight, fight and you let them fight and eventually they just break. They're like, okay, I can't beat the tree. Doesn't matter how hard I try, what I do, how hard I struggle, the tree always beats me. Well, then what happens is they remember that and they hold on to that as they grow into adulthood. So now they're these two-ton machines, just heavy monsters. And he can tie it to a stick and the, the elephant goes, ah, I'm done. Just gives up because they're just broken. They go, ah, that, that thing beats me every time. I can't overcome it. I'm done. Is that not totally how we operate as humans? That we keep hitting obstacles or disappointment or things that break our hearts, things that let us down, things that frustrate us, things that upset us, and we go, I just can't overcome that thing. Could be addictions, could be things in relationships, whatever it is, and we just go, I, I just can't do it. I can't beat that, I can't overcome it. It doesn't matter how much you've grown, but we, tend, we hit this ceiling and we go, okay, I just can't beat it. The guy that we're gonna be looking at today I think he's been through a long period of his life of making really, really bad choices, of, go, of holding on to promises and waiting for those promises to come true and they just keep getting pushed further out, it seems like, and it seems like God is silent and it just can be so disappointing and he could probably be burnt out and probably feel just like, okay, man, this isn't working out for me. Man, this can't happen. Man, I just can't get over these things. For a lot of us, maybe it's, man, I can't get over the stuff that I did. I can't get over the stuff that I said. I can't get over the stuff that happened to me or was said to me. 
There's a lot of things that you and I can be holding on to that just causes us to go, ah, oh, okay, I'm done. I can't do it. I can't overcome it. And what happens is you have God in this story shows up to this man and really lays out for him, this is my love for you. This is my relationship to you, your relationship to me. This is who I am. I need you to trust me. The stuff that happened in your past, we can address that. We can figure that out. We can move past it, but this is who I am. So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter 17. And if your Bible has a header, it probably has some form of combination of the word Abraham and covenant and circumcision. Which who's, who's the better guy to be up here, you know? Like, it's chosen. I had a joke. I decided to cut it. But I'm shh. Boo. <laughs> okay, so covenant. Covenant shows up 27 times in the book of Genesis. In this chapter by itself, it shows up 13 times. So the theme of this chapter is covenant. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're doing. So Genesis 17, starting in verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. The first is starting out. What do you need to know about Abram? He is old. He's old, old, old. Like, I think people who are 50 are old. <laughs> Boo! Oh, no, this isn't going. I'm getting so many boos tonight. <laughs> In Genesis 16, verse 16, we learn that Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So this is 13 years after. So now Ishmael's 13 years old. It's been 13 years since he made that big mistake, big problem. Hey, God was supposed to deliver us a, a child and through our family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It really seems like for some reason that God is struggling. So hey, let's just help him out by doing something real bad and real dumb, really shouldn't do and causes a lot, a lot of problems for us and our, our, his marriage, just relationally with everyone else in this camp causes huge, huge, huge problems. And it's been a really long time since Abraham and God have spoken. I mean, it's been a long time since we even checked in with Abram at all. It's been 13 years. Could you imagine being 99 years old and raising a 13 year old? Dude, I'm having a hard time raising a seven-year-old right now. You know, 13 years old, he's 99 years old. He's raising Ishmael to be his, his heir, essentially, and he's not gonna be his heir. So it, a lot is happening. And God appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So God Almighty, it's this word El Shaddai. It's the first time that this word shows up. And it's translated in English, God Almighty. And the idea is God is saying, I am the all-sufficient one. I am the source of life for you. That there's no one above me. There's nothing that I cannot do. There's, there's nothing that is withheld from me. I can do anything and absolutely everything that I'm the one who gave you breath. I'm the one who can supply your every need. I'm God Almighty. So he says, I am God Almighty. I'm El Shaddai. Walk before me. Our relationship together is supposed to be a walk that we go on together and we spend time together. 
One of my favorite things to do before I teach is I go on a walk and I talk with Jesus. And that's just, that's what I get to do. In my truck, the aux cable got broken and there's nothing ever good on the radio in Grants Pass. I don't know what that's about, ever. And so that's just, okay, that's drive and talk with Jesus time. And it just is a, a great time where, okay, we're just, I'm having a relationship with God and like Jesus is walking on this trail with me, like Jesus is sitting in the car with me and I'm gonna talk with him because that's the approach that he wants me to have. So he says, I'm the all-sufficient one. I'm the one who gives you life. Walk before me and be blameless. And so you might think, well, geez, that's, that's a lot harder to accomplish. It's not saying be without sin, but he's saying be of integrity, be someone who's honest. Follow my instructions is literally how you could look at that. Walk with me and just do what I say. And this chapter happens right on the heels of chapter 16 where things are bad, 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 bad. So is, is, could you call Abram blameless right now? Not really. When we did vacation Bible school, my son came into the class and they sat down and we had these because elephants are cool, and I, apparently I really like elephants, we had elephant cookies that we had Babe's Bakery made, just these big elephant cookies, and the kids were gonna decorate them. And the whole idea is the kids come sit down, there's frosting, there's sprinkles, there's their cookie, and Josiah's gonna get on the stage and tell them about how God has made us fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knows every hair that's on your head, God knows your name before you were ever born, God has a plan, a purpose, a hope, and a future for you, and all of that goes great with young kids until they have frosting in their hand, right? So we tell the kids, don't touch the frosting. Josiah's gonna tell you something and then you'll get to touch the frosting. And so we had all these different colors of frosting. And what turns out to be the cheapest frosting is black. No one wants black. You can get a five gallon container of black frosting off of Amazon right now, $20. That's true. And so I had black frosting everywhere. And it turns out that stuff stains, like goes everywhere. And so we say, don't touch the frosting over and over and over again. And one of the, my volunteers looks over at my son, Elon, and he's got black all over his face. And she just kind of looks at him, he's looking at her, he goes, I didn't touch the frosting. <laughs> I go, okay. <laughs> God says, just follow my instruction. Just be blameless. When you don't, it leaves a mark and everybody knows about it. Your sin finds you out. And so verse two, God says, I'm, I'm God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless. Verse two, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is the first time we've talked about the covenant in 25 years 25 years, that is such a long time. Imagine 75 years old, God promises you're gonna have a kid and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then God tells him, this promise is gonna, I'm gonna bring it through you. All of the families of the world are gonna be blessed by your kids, by your nation, by what's gonna come out from you. And what you see with Abraham the entire time that we've been walking with him since is he almost does everything possible to put the promise in jeopardy. Doesn't he seem like he's like, you're going out of your way to make mistakes right now. So you, you, there's a famine in the land. So you go to Egypt and you're afraid for your life and, and uh, what are we gonna do? My wife is like super pretty and they're gonna kill me for her. Um, that's my sister and you can have her. 
And God's like, I just made a promise to give you guys a kid. Like, does it just seem like you've just, you've literally made the worst choice possible? Well, then they get out from that scenario. Abraham has his nephew, Lot, who's a lot of trouble. And they're in a tiff with each other. They're having an argument. They've got too many shepherds on both sides. They can't all eat enough. They can't share the space. And God tells Abraham, look at this land that I'm gonna give to you. This is gonna be your people's for generation after generation after generation. But then Abraham and Lot get in a tiff and Abraham goes, what, what land do you want? You could just choose. Well, that one's supposed to be Abraham's. And luckily Lot wanted Sodom and Gomorrah area, but I mean, it just seems like you you're keep putting yourself in positions where things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And so now God says, I'm gonna give Abraham a son. Well, he's just taking too long, so I'll take it into my own hands and I'll have a son with Hagar. Oh no, that was great, man. No, he just keeps, he's, he's a walking disaster that keeps trying to put the promise into jeopardy. And so God says to him, hey, I am the source of life. If I tell you I can do something, I can do something. There's nothing out of bounds for me. And so I need you to stop doing chapter 16 stuff. I need you to look at me as someone that you can trust in and rely on and come through for you. That when I say I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it. Look to me as your source, walk with me, and be blameless so that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And so what does Abram do? Abram, in verse three, this is what he does. Then Abram fell on his face. God said, hey, you messed up. You need to view me as the source of life. You need to walk with me and stop doing chapter 16 stuff. And Abraham, he falls on his face. I blew it. I made a mistake. I failed. When you and I come to God in repentance, does God continue to beat you and me over our heads with our foolishness? Absolutely not. Watch what God does in response to Abram repenting, saying, oh my gosh, I've messed up, falling on his face before the Lord. And God said, verse four skin, sorry, verse four. Well, it, it says it in the Bible, we're gonna read it. Like, I get a pass. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. What does God do in response to Abraham's repentance? He just blesses him. He just says, I, you're gonna be the father of a multitude of nations. It's even bigger. You're not just one kid, a multitude of nations. He blesses him. Verse five, no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God renames Abraham. God renames him. This, his parents gave him that name 99 years ago, he's walked with it for quite a while. Abram, what it means is exalted father. It could even mean father of many. And so just imagine when people come over to his, his and Sarai's house, they don't really know them. And they hear, hey, we're going over to exalted father's house. Hey, how many kids do you guys have? And they're like 50. Oh, none. Oh, you should get a name change. It's kind of just, it's weird. Doesn't really fit. And so now God isn't just saying, no, it's not just exalted father. I want your name 
Where is it? His name is father of many nations is how that gets translated. Abraham goes from just exalted father to you're the father of many nations. God just changes his name. Says, I've got a bigger purpose for you. God is saying to Abraham, you belong to me. I'm not giving up on you. You are mine. My plans for you are exceedingly abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. I want you to trust in me. I want you to follow me. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Do you guys see that verse? It's verse five at the very end. For I have made you. It's really interesting that have made, there's no like past tense there. So you have to remember that the Hebrew gets translated to English and some words just don't work out right. So kind of like love, like you and I can say, I love Doritos, I love Cheetos, and I love my kids. It's a totally different kind of love, right? So like you, you will, you'll do anything for your kids. You'll give up Cheetos when your wife says we're not doing any more processed food and you'll cry about it but you'll give it up, right? It's a different word. Well, this have made, it's a perfect verb. What that means is it's looked at like it's already entirely complete. It's a done deal. Because you responded with repentance, this thing is done. It's set in stone. It's already been decided. You are the father of a multitude of nations. In verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So covenant is a really weird word. It's not a word that we use a lot. You and I are kind of more familiar with the term like contract. What a contract is, is you and I sit down and we establish the terms of our contract. If you make good on your end and, and then I have to make good on my end, then the contract is completed. If you make good on your end and I don't make good on my end, the contract is terminated and there's consequences for it. So like you sign a contract with your employer. I will show up and perform labor and you will pay me a wage. When you stop paying me a wage, I'm not gonna do labor anymore, right? My dad has worked construction his entire life down in San Diego. And I suppose there's been times where you didn't pay your contractor, so he's taken the work back. And that's a bummer. You just built this shower. Oh, you're not gonna pay me. That's my shower, I guess. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> but that's what a contract is. Contract is, I'm gonna do something, and you're gonna fulfill your side of the contract, and if we, we meet all those terms, then you get all the benefit. But if God wanted contracts with people, people are always gonna fail their side of the contract. People are always going to fail their side of the contract. That's what you see over and over again through all of the people that in the Bible specifically who directly talk face to face with God. You see Abram talks with God. I'm gonna do something amazing through you and your wife. Right on. Who wants my wife? You're like, just go, what? 
No, if it was a contract, you're out, dude. Like, we're going to have to find someone else who can do the job correctly. So that's not what covenant is. It's not a contract. Covenant is not a contract, but it's more like God saying, I am going to fulfill these promises. And I want your participation in my fulfillment of those promises. But ultimately, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. And so there's a, a Bible that we use with the little kids in the kids wing. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it defines this covenant from this chapter as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Dude, little kids' Bibles just nail it sometimes. Isn't that so good? The never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Because you and I, we fall short all of the time like Abraham in shocking ways. In ways that like from outside church, you go, I cannot believe that you would do that. We do everything that we can to put the promise in jeopardy, but God is faithful and holds his promise to you and to me every single day. And his mercies are brand new each and every day. And so in the Old Testament, you have four covenants that God lays out. There's one with Noah, there's one with Abraham, there's one with Israel, and there's one with King David, and then Jeremiah prophesies there's gonna be a future covenant, that there's gonna be a new covenant. And you find it in Jeremiah 31, 31, where Jeremiah prophesies about this new covenant, and I'll read it for you. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. So see, God made a promise to them. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. We're gonna do life together. You can trust in me. I'm gonna come through for you. I will deliver you. Israel said, no, we don't want you. We wanna serve other gods. We wanna serve idols. We wanna follow the other nations and have kings just like everybody else. We wanna do things our own way. God says, okay, you rejected me. You're breaking my covenant with me. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There's gonna be a new covenant coming that's not based upon law, but based upon grace. And so for you and me, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you are a part of this covenant. God cannot love you any more than he loves you right now. God cannot love you any less. God cannot love you anymore. He's not withholding love from you until you achieve something, until you become something, until you memorize something. You cannot lose any love from God because God's love towards you is not predicated upon your achievement or your behavior or your performance. And there's a lot of us, because pastors, we meet with 
with a lot of you all throughout the week, there's a lot of us who believe there's a lot of grace and mercy and devotion and love from God towards other people, but not towards us because I messed up, I broke that, I failed, I betrayed them, I did everything I could to put the promise in jeopardy. And we, we know intellectually, no, God, God's got mercy every new each day and God loves my neighbor. God wants more people to come in and say, but then we have our own trouble reconciling. Oh my gosh, can God forgive me for that? Absolutely. Because his love is not contingent upon you being a person who performs. His love on you is not contingent upon you doing well or doing the right thing, knowing the right stuff or saying the right things. So we, human beings, we've brought death into the world. And there's three things that God can do, right? There's three things that God can do. God can force us to fix the problem and that's called works and it never works because you and I will always try to, to do the things. Here's the law. If you fulfill the law, if you complete these things, if you do these things correctly, then you will be righteous. No one is able to do those things. There was a guy who tried really, really, really hard recently. He wrote a book about it, made a lot of money. Can't do it. You cannot fulfill the law. It is impossible. You have even Paul. Paul is like, man, I tried my hardest. There is no one that could fulfill the law like me, but the, it's the internal stuff. It's coveting other people. It's just, I couldn't overcome that. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't do what the law commanded. So the law proves to us, you can't do that. Works don't work. So that's not an option. God could say, hey, enjoy your broken, separated from God, fallen self, and you just go to hell when you die. That you reap what you sow and you earn separation from God and that's what you've earned. So there you go. That's option two. Or option three, God says, I'm gonna love those who don't love me. I will pursue those who don't pursue me. I'm gonna have a heart for those who don't have a heart for me. And so God comes into human history and lives the life that you and I could not live, dies the death that you and I ultimately deserve to pay our price to God for our sin, to reconcile us with him. And so now you and I, when God looks at us, he, he sees nothing but his perfect son because all your sins were paid for. All of them are forgiven and wiped clean and gone. And when God looks at you, he sees you as being righteous like Jesus. And so there's nothing that you need to do in order for God to say, oh my gosh, I love you because it's already been done. We're gonna be in Genesis for a long time. As we're going through Genesis, you're gonna be looking at fathers and you're gonna be looking at sons. And the whole point is there's a father who's going to be sending his son and his son Jesus is coming through Abraham and through Isaac and through them is a line of kings that's ultimately gonna come the king of kings. This is all a story about Jesus trying to get us to understand God's covenantal love for us. And if everything that needed to be done for me was already done by Jesus on the cross, then there's nothing that I can do, there's nothing that you can do to further earn God's love. And that means there's nothing you could do to ever unearn God's love because you didn't earn it. That's what our covenant looks like. It's not predicated upon your ability or your achievement or your knowledge, or your strengths, but it's set in stone by what Jesus has done. And now you and I get to have a partnership with God where we say, I, I, I know I can't possibly lose your affection, but I wanna walk forward with you in pursuing your kingdom and your will be done because, oh my gosh, you've been so good to me, how could I not? How could I not respond that way? 
When I've been forgiven this much, how could I not forgive? When I've been loved this much, how could I not love? And so that's what our covenant looks like. This is what Abraham's covenant looks like, verse nine. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. So all of this cool stuff is available to you. You just need to keep my commandment. Cool, what is your commandment? What's your covenant? Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. He's 99 years old. That woke him up, huh? Uh, My hearing aid is, hold on. What did you say? And in case you missed it, in case you're like, no, it's gotta be a misinterpretation. God repeats, verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Let's get specific. (laughs) And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Abraham is like, nice. Okay, so covenants, they have a mark, don't they? So when you get married, there's a mark of your covenant that the pastor will say at at weddings, do you have a token of your covenant? And then they exchange rings with each other. And those rings, what they do is they demonstrate to everyone else, they mark for everyone else, I belong to somebody else. And something that our society has lost is when you get married, you're making a covenant. And what a covenant is, is it's not a contract. A contract is, hey, you make me really happy and I really enjoy spending time with you and I really like um, all that you bring to our relationship. But as soon as I stop feeling happy with you and I'm not fulfilled by you anymore and I'm not feeling like you're bringing so much to the table, we're probably gonna have to part ways. No, that's a contract, that's not a covenant. When you get married, you make a covenant. What the covenant is, is you're saying, I'm gonna make good on my promise And I'm hoping for a partnership with you in helping me fulfill that promise to the best of my abilities. So Mark Scudstad has this great quote that he reads at at weddings and I printed it out and I have it taped on the inside of my Bible because I just think it's brilliant. He says this at weddings. I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. That promise made up for your faults. And that promise I gave you made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married and it was the promise that made the marriage. And when our children were growing up, it wasn't a house that protected them. And it wasn't our love that protected them. It was that promise. Amen, dude. When your kids are raised in a home like that, it's so healthy because they're able to see a husband and a wife having a disagreement and not be worried, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen to our future because they know, no, they're they're covenanted together. They're gonna fulfill their ends of the promise, hoping for a partnership. The disagreement might be about that partnership, sure, but we're gonna be pursuing the end of our promise. When I got married, my grandma, she sat me down. My grandma is rad. And I'm the, I was the oldest person of like four generations to get married at the age of 21. 
right? So my grandma got married to my grandpa. She was like 17, and then he went to Vietnam. Like, they were just young. And uh, she told me, we do not get divorced in this family. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's fine. And she's like, no, 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 no. You're making a promise until death do you part. If you part, you will die. And I'm like, okay. She's like, I will kill you. And it's like, oh, okay. There you go. Just being real clear on these are the terms of this covenant. So weddings, when you get married, you get marked by your covenant. You have a ring. It's demonstrating to other people that I am someone else's. I have a tattoo. I'm realizing that as I'm doing that, but it's still a mark. There's something there. When you, uh, um, for the Israelites, they're marked as God's people, not just outwardly on their body like this is talking about, but you can actually tell when you go to Israel, everything shuts down on Saturday. On their Sabbath, the world shuts down. You can't use an elevator. You can't flip on a light switch. You can't do anything that's considered work. It's, it's wild. The entire nation shuts down in reverence of following and obeying God in covenantal relationship with him. It's amazing. So you would, you would know when you're there, you're like, oh, this is why that they do this. So you have a wedding. You have, for a wedding, you got a ring. For Israel, you have the nation shuts down weekly. For you and for me, as New Testament believers, what is our mark? How are you and I marked? How, how do people know that we're Christians? By our super cool tattoos, right? By our Jesus tattoos. That's why everyone who came here tonight gets a free tattoo. Yeah. No, Jesus tells us, this is what the mark looks like. This is how other people are gonna know that you're mine. When other people look at your spouse, they know that they belong to someone because they're ring. When other people go to Israel, to my nation, and they see everyone shut down, they know they're my people because of that. Jesus says, everyone will know that you're my disciples, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That the kind of love that you and I demonstrate to other people is supposed to be so remarkable that it's like, wearing a wedding ring on your hand, that it stands out, that you cannot miss it, that you can't overlook it, it's a big deal. That's the kind of mark that we're supposed to have on us as believers. And so verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant will be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. And here's what's really crazy if you read, when you read this and you think about it, because there's some stuff that you read and you might initially think, oh, that's arbitrary. Like that's just, that's interesting, but kind of, I don't know why God decided that, but it's arbitrary and I don't get it. Why does God say the eighth day? On the eighth day, you're gonna, get, you're gonna circumcise your kids. Why wouldn't you just say, hey, before they're one, like give a little leeway there have some freedom in it. Why does God say specifically, I want it done on the eighth day? 
This is so fascinating to me, it's crazy. There's two components in your body that are needed for really good blood clotting to happen, and it's vitamin K and prothrombin. And for your body, the highest level of prothrombin in you, it starts off at zero, you get it from breast milk, it starts to climb, on day eight, it jumps up past 100% of normal up to around 130% of normal, and then it goes back down to 100% of normal for the rest of your life. And so on that day, your body is designed to have more agents in you to help blood clotting. How nuts is that? And that was just recently figured out. The people who figured that out got a Nobel Prize for it. This is a couple hundred years ago, sure, but we're talking about something that happened 3,000 years ago, this discussion, 4,000 years ago, this discussion. How amazing is that? It's just one of those things where people who say stuff like the Bible is an accumulation of books written by people wanting to control other people just to get in people's heads and control the masses, you just go, then how would they know that? That's insane. This is one of those little things that make you go, wow, God is so big. So much bigger than I give him credit for. He's in, in even the mundane things that I go, oh, that's arbitrary, that doesn't matter. God can be seen working in it. And so the last thing that you and I should note is circumcision for the Israelites, it's permanent. You can't undo that. And so for you and me, can you and I lose our salvation? Can a believer ever be a non-believer? The best illustration for that is you can never unpickle a cucumber. Once a cucumber is a pickle, you'll never get it back. I'm tempted to start using this illustration instead. Abraham would say, could you ever be decircumcised? You know, there's not people the next day going, yeah, I want it back, right? Like you can't, it doesn't work that way. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you're a pickle, you're a pickle. The question is, are you one of Jesus's sheep or not? And that's something even that the Bible says that other people can't look at you and make that decision for you so much as we like to do for our neighbors, but it's actually something that internally we need to say, oh God, am I? We need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We need to examine our, God, will you examine my heart? Am I following you? Do I, because there's a, a very scary section in the Bible where Jesus says a group will come to him and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You're not my sheep. And so right now you're probably wondering, should you be circumcised today? Lock the doors. And this was a big point of contention for the early church because the early church, the first people who were saved, they were all Jews. And so the early church is largely circumcised people, but then you have the Gentile people coming in saying, hey, this Jesus stuff is great. We love it. And then you have this group of people called the Judaizers who are Jewish Christians that come to the Gentiles. And this is a big problem in, in the city of Galatia. And they say, hey, it's great that you love Jesus. Love that. Love that he saved you. And Jesus is great, but you need to be circumcised. Like right now you're on the Jesus subscription, but you need the Jesus plus subscription. And this is what we have to do. And there were people who were like, okay, so what you're saying is potentially I'm facing hell and weeping and, and gnashing of teeth unless I experience hell and weeping and gnashing of teeth is what you're saying. So I, it's a coin toss at this point. 
And so what happened, I'm sure, is there were people in Galatia who loved Jesus and they hear these people who really, they know their Bible really well. The Jews would know their Bible super well. And they were saying, hey, you need to take this extra step for Jesus. He needs this from you in order for you to really be saved. And so they go, okay, I'm all in. And they go for it. And then they show up to church the following week after Paul has written his letter to the Galatians saying there's nothing that you can do to add to your works. And there's a lot of angry men at church saying, read it again. Right? It's like, I must have misheard. I canceled my fishing plans. No, Paul says, it's fine if you want to be circumcised for any other reason. For health reasons, sure, but you don't do it for religious reasons because there's nothing that you can do to add to your salvation or to earn God's love from you more. God wants more than just this outward marking for you and for me. In fact, it's gonna say in the Old Testament, God wants people who've got circumcised ears and hearts and eyes. As you go, well, dang, what does that mean? Because he wants a group of people who are sensitive towards other people because it's really easy for us to become callous towards other people's suffering, other people hurting, what other people are going through. And he wants a group of people who we're known for loving one another and we're sensitive to the needs of other people. And so verse 15 And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarah means princess or queen. And I just think that's rad. Like Sarai has had a rough go the entire time we've known her and God just elevates her. I will bless her. And moreover, in verse 16, I will give you a son by her, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? God, you can't be serious. All three of us are gonna be in diapers. That is so expensive. In verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham's like, God, I don't know if you noticed, but I actually got this 13-year-old right now. He's kind of a handful. Maybe he could be the guy. And verse 19, God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Ishmael doesn't get abandoned by God. He doesn't get cut off for being the wrong guy. God blesses Ishmael. In verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. And I just think we have really glossed over a very interesting interaction between him and his guys. 
Like, so he comes down, God's talking with him, and he says, hey, God told me he's gonna give me a son next year. Everyone's like, yeah, that's awesome. But more than that, it's not just about me. God's gonna have a, a, a he's gonna be our God. Like he's gonna be ours and we're gonna be his exclusively. Like, this is so great. He's gonna be our dude. Everyone's like, yeah, this is awesome. And everyone's like, <laughs> there is There is some bad news. And rather than explain it, I think that let's just form a line. And the first will be last and the last shall be first, right? <laughs> oh man. But here's what's amazing. If you noticed it, Abraham that day did what God told him to do. He was on it. Even when it was really hard and confusing and maybe didn't make sense why to even his dudes, it's this is what God has told us to do, so we're going to do it. Even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's frustrating, even when it's difficult, he does it that day. I know that my predisposition is to go, yeah, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray on it a little longer because maybe I misheard God. Oh, I'm gonna think about it a little bit. I'm gonna get some counsel first. No, you do it this day. Abraham that day goes and does a really hard thing. And verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So just a quick thing, because it is interesting. Why is it that God wants this? God wants something from the men, but not from the women. How come God, for his covenant sign, wants it to be male circumcision? There's a lot of reasons. I think part of it is this, is it is a daily reminder of I'm God's person. And I can't help but see that. And I can't help but interact with that. And Abraham's last biggest issue that became an obstacle and would further become obstacles for generations was sexual immorality. And so for him and for his people, it's, no, I belong to God. I know who my God is. My God can do exceedingly abundantly above anything I could ever ask or think. I don't need to lie, steal, and cheat, manipulate my way to getting what I think God wants for me, but I can trust that God is ultimately gonna get me where he needs me to be. And so for you and I today, as we wrap up, what you need to know is there is nothing that you could ever, ever do that could add to the amount of love that God has for you. That God cannot possibly love you more than he loves you right now, and there's nothing that you could ever do to unearn his love. You and I get to, for the rest of our lives, continue to strive and work for his approval, for the well done, good and faithful servant. Hey, good job, you nailed it but you'll never lose his love and you'll never lose your salvation. Jesus says that nothing could ever take you out of his hands. Jesus is a really big dude. And when Jesus says nothing, it means nothing. There is nothing that can take you out of his hands. And so Jesus, I pray that we as your people, as we leave this place, that we would be reminded of how truly loved we are, despite our mistakes, our failures, our faults, 
the way that we blow, blow it every single day. I pray that your grace and your love would just cover us and it would cause, it would cause us to be conduits of that love towards others. That we'd be marked by your love that everyone in Grant's past would know that we love and follow Jesus by our love for one another. Help us to have that kind of countercultural, completely over-the-top love for those that we are around, for our neighbors, and even as you demonstrated for our enemies. That those who strike us and curse us and want the worst for us, we go to you on their behalf and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and we love them as you love them. Help us to love as you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 God bless you guys.